0: Because we are entering a new chapter in the book of Romans, I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 8. For the sake of time, however, and knowing that we will, Lord willing, come to verses 18 to 39 in due course, I will just read for you this morning from the English Standard Version of the Bible, Romans 8, verses 1 to 17. Romans 8, verses 1 to 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. In you. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit of slavery, For the last several messages in the latter part of Romans 7, I've contended that the Apostle Paul was describing himself in the first person. And he did so because he was taking a discerning look at the tension he found within his own Christian life. We took our time observing how Paul discerningly described not only himself, but all true Christians, who most assuredly experience this same tension between the already of the current break with sin's dominion and the not yet of their ultimate glorified state where sin's very presence will be liberatingly eliminated. Right now, you and I experience a tension a tension period which is in between those two realities. It is known as the here and now. And it is where Paul in his day and you and I in ours currently live. We live in the tension of the here and now because while it is true that we have already been freed from sins enslaving bondage and are on our way to heaven, having been delivered from a judgment which would otherwise send us to an eternal hell, we nevertheless have not yet received our ultimate redemption, which of course is the full and complete deliverance we so desperately cry out for to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, we live in the in-between period, constantly seeing ourselves, as Paul did in Romans 7, as that wretched man. We love God. We delight in the inner man to the law of God and its love. But we find ourselves drawn back into the sinful thoughts and deeds which used to characterize us and we long to be ultimately and finally delivered from any and all sin so that our possession of holiness will be our very, our profession of holiness will be our very possession. And because this is our sincere desire as genuine believers in Christ, Paul wants to encourage us. He wants to greatly encourage us with Romans 8. And not only what awaits us in glory, that's the part that I didn't read, that's verses 18 to 39, But he wants to encourage us also with what is presently true about us, even in the in-between time of the already and the not yet. That's for us in verses 1 to 17. From these verses, we are taught tremendous truths about the present life of the Christian. It's going to take us some time to track our way through everything that Paul says characterizes true believers in verses 1 to 17. But I want you to notice what permeates all of it in chapter 8. And that is the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, whereas Paul doesn't mention the active role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life in Romans 7, although it certainly is there, The Holy Spirit comes through so very loud and clear in Romans chapter 8. Throughout Romans 8, I counted, at least in the English standard version of the Bible, that if you have one and if you've read Romans chapter 8, you counted some 20 references to the work of the Holy Spirit His ministry in us, in our sanctification. And so then when you combine Romans 7 and 8, you have a very, very important section, the most important section in my judgment, in the Word of God about the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in the sanctification of the believer. In other words, when Paul cries out, O wretched man that I am, He answers his question there in Romans 7 in the latter part only in the ultimate sense that Jesus Christ will one day completely and finally deliver us from this body of death. But he doesn't answer the question in the here and now of what the Roman believers are to do. That awaits our study of Romans 8. It's right on the heels of chapter 7. And he tells us, this is the work of the Spirit in your life as Roman believers, and of course by application to our day, ourselves as well, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what you can count on through the Spirit's work and ministry. In other words, he's telling us, this is not a work that you and I accomplish on our own. This is the work of the Spirit in us. This is the work of the Spirit for us. This is the work of the Spirit through us. And it is accomplished in our daily walk in the realm or the sphere or the domain of the Spirit and His life. We are to be engulfed in the power of the Spirit. It is our walking daily in His life and ministry. It is to be possessed by Him and striding with Him in our walk as He shapes us into progressive conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, God the Father's Son. This is what Romans 8 is all about, beloved. This is this is an incredible chapter, and it's designed to show us both what we are in Christ and what we are to do in Christ under the direction and the empowerment of our blessed Holy Spirit. Now this morning, as we merely introduce the Spirit's role in our sanctification, I want you to see two great spirit life principles. I like to say it that way. Living in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. The Spirit's life in us. The Spirit life. There are two great... Spirit life principles that we can see from our Bibles in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 to 4. And these spirit life principles are what every Christian must, I say must, understand about their new life in the realm or the sphere or the domain of the Holy Spirit. Listen again to Romans 8 verses 1 to 4. in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Incredible. Incredible, tremendous, far-reaching implications of the truths contained in Romans 8, verses 1-4. to And it is very applicable to your life. The first spirit life principle that I want you to notice about what it truly means to be living in the sphere or the realm or the domain of the Holy Spirit is that according to verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great truth. And the second spiritual life principle, the Spirit's life in us, we see in verse 4. And it is to say that through the death of Christ... We can actually fulfill the righteous requirements of God's holy law because we walk now according to the dictates of that same Holy Spirit. What tremendous truths these are. Let's dig into the first one. The spirit life principle from verses 1 and 2. We could say it like this. There is no condemnation from sin for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation from sin for those who are in Christ Jesus. First, I want you to notice that Paul uses that word now in this sentence. What do you suspect he means by the use of this word now? Do you think he is using it in the sense that right then and there, when he wrote those words, it was right then and not before then? Is that what he means by there is therefore now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? No, that's really not what he's saying. It's really what we might call a theological now. It's an interpretive now that doesn't just mean the present. It includes the present. But it also, of course, reverts to the past. And it, of course, also looks to the future. It's a now in this sense. It has theological significance. What is its significance? It is this. With the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, having accomplished the work which God had set out for Him to do, a new age has been inaugurated. That's what that now means. It's not talking about now just in the present tense. It includes that. But it's really talking about a new inaugurated age. And it is the age of the Spirit. That's really what he's saying. He's making a a turn from Romans 7 to Romans 8 in this sense. I'm going to tell you now the new inaugurated age of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit has done in the life of the church, in the life of believers. That's the now. You say, well, when did that now actually begin in space and time? Well, it began at Pentecost. It began in Acts 2. You say, how so? Well, it began in that sense that the Holy Spirit was poured out in the forming of the body of Christ. And in one sense, theologically speaking, and it would be true to say, that it also began prior to that with the very death of Christ itself. That was the foundation. That was the ground. That was the basis from which the Holy Spirit then, in Acts chapter 2, at Christ's own behest, formed the body of Christ. You realize that in Acts chapter 2, if the Holy Spirit had not been poured out to form the very body of Christ, there would be no Roman believers, there would be no Roman church, there would be no the Bible church of Little Rock. It wouldn't have happened. When he says now, he's talking about the age of the Spirit. The inauguration of the Spirit's direct work through believers in the formation of the body of Christ. You say, how do you come to that conclusion? Look at verse 2. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free... In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Notice the specific language that Paul uses there. He says, It is the Spirit of life which has set you free from the law of sin and death. It is the now of the Spirit's work in setting us free from the law of sin and death. It is the very connecting of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, as important and foundational as that is, also with the equally foundationally important and crucial dynamic of the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. Do you realize that if Jesus Christ... Who dies on that cross for sinners and you count yourself one, you would not even have a relationship with Jesus Christ unless it is the Holy Spirit of God who regenerates your heart, creates a new heart within you so that you are responding to the work of Christ on the cross. It is a package deal. This is the age, Paul says, of the spirit of life. If there is life in the church, it is because of the Holy Spirit. And with that in mind, read verse 1 again. There is therefore now, now in the age of the Spirit, no condemnation for those who are the those. Those whom the Spirit grants life. Who otherwise were sinners condemned under the law of Moses... And with it, bringing certain death, those who are safely in a vital union with Christ Jesus. Paul calls this new life in the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life. What's he saying? Whereas once you were under the law's condemnation of the sentence of death because of your sin, because of my sin, now there is a new principle operating in the world. A new law, he says. It's the law of the Spirit of life which has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see, I told you it was applicable to you. You would be under the condemnation, the sentence of death, under the judgment of a holy God if it weren't for the Spirit of life who has set you free from that law of sin and death. And it is all because the Holy Spirit at that marvelous hour when He formed the body of Christ, supernaturally placing you and me in it and all true believers into a vital union with Christ as the chief cornerstone. See the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit? Don't depreciate the work of the Holy Spirit. Even for the sake of appreciating the work of Christ. It's a packaged deal. For everyone, therefore, who is in Christ Jesus, Paul says there's no condemnation. No condemnation whatsoever. You know, if you had the opportunity to visit every hospital, every, every psychiatric ward, every mental institution... Every counseling session, do you realize the liberating reality if someone knew with certainty that they were not condemned to a sentence of death because of their sins? Do you know what a liberating reality that would be? To know that they had the forgiveness of sins, to know that their sentence of death had been not only commuted, but eliminated altogether? Not just for the sake of time served, but actually atoned for. Forgiven. They are declared not guilty. Oh, what a truth of the Spirit-led life. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is this, that you and I have no condemnation. What a truth. Do you, do you bask in the glow of the fact that Jesus Christ did what He did on the cross for sinners and you count yourself as one of those and the Holy Spirit in forming the very body of Christ supernaturally placed you and me in it and when we in space and time placed our own personal confidence and trust in jesus christ that we were the very ones for whom we realize that jesus christ died for us that the holy spirit has given us life in his name and that there is because of that now no condemnation what a truth You, you you wake up in the morning every morning and you can say to yourself i'm on my way to heaven i'm on my way to glory God has forgiven my sins. I'm not condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I guess this is the appropriate point where I should ask you, what about you? Are you one of those who are in Christ Jesus? By the very logic of the verse, not everyone is in Christ Jesus. Read it like this. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see the limiting aspect of that passage? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't believe those who wrongfully conclude that everyone in the history of the world ultimately gets in. It's not true. That's a lie. It's a lie from Satan. It's a lie from hell itself. The condemnation of sinners is real. They're headed for an eternal death. And it is nullified only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh. But what a comforting, wonderfully liberating truth that is. There is now, therefore, because of the Holy Spirit's life-giving freedom, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus the Lord. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Or are you still in your sins? Which will inevitably bring about your eternal condemnation. I say to you, make the now of Romans 8.1 your now. Make it now. Make it right now. Ask yourself in your own heart, ask God the Father to show you your sin as never before, and then hurriedly place your faith in Jesus Christ and what He did at Calvary Who will give you by His gracious Spirit life in Himself. Don't you want to experience that life? Don't you desire a new kind of life than the life of sin that you've been living? Understand and acknowledge and rejoice in the truth that in eternity past, God determined those to whom He would grant His Spirit and who because of the work of Jesus upon that cross might pour out His power to form a spiritual body of believers out of every tribe and people and tongue and nation who are forever free from the law of sin and death. Sin brings death. The Holy Spirit brings life. You see those contrasts here in this text? The law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. This is, by the way, essentially the same truth that Paul told the Romans when referring to Christ. Not the Holy Spirit, but Christ. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Romans 6, 6. We know... It's one of those Pauline we knows peppered throughout his epistles. We know... That our old man, not self, man, it's the word anthropos, we know that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Notice, for one who has died Christ, uh, excuse me, one who has died ourselves in Christ has been set free from sin. Same language here in Romans 8. Set free from the law of sin and death. In Romans 6 he says to be set free is to be alive in Christ. That's what verse 11 of Romans 6 says. It nails it down. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So if you're a Christian, you're alive to God, the Bible says. If you're a Christian, you're alive to Christ Jesus, the Bible says. And if you're a Christian, the Bible says you're alive to the Spirit. That's a Trinitarian life-giving reality. We are alive to God the Father. We are alive to Christ Jesus. We are alive to the Holy Spirit of life Himself. What a powerful first spirit life principle. No condemnation. Do you live under the guilt of sin? Do you live under the guilt that God is going to judge you? Do you live under the awareness that you do not know with certainty that there is no condemnation for you? Well, it's true if you're not in Christ Jesus. Come to Christ. Believe in Him. Believe in His work. And you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't we just finish Romans chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul doesn't sound so confident? No, that's really not it at all. He's just giving us reality. He knows the battle with sin. He knows of that, but He also knows the liberating power of the Holy Spirit. He's just giving us a package deal. Remember, Romans 8 is just a chapter division that's that's arbitrary. It wasn't in the original text. Romans 7 and Romans 8 go together. This is a packaged reality. Yes, He does say in Romans 7... I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but I on the other hand also serve the law of sin. But there's no final condemnation, no complete condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's a principle that works in the spiritual world that says that I can begin a new life, begun in the Holy Spirit, who sets me free from the principle of sin and death. Absolutely. Yes, I battle with sin. Yes, it's a reality in my heart. And yes, it will always dog my steps until glory. But I also realize that in the midst of the struggle of the daily walk of the Christian life, when I battle sin, I have the confidence that there is no condemnation that awaits me because I'm in Christ Jesus. Do you rejoice in that, believer? do you rejoice what a what a grand spirit life principle no condemnation in fact look at chapter 8 verse 6 if you have your mind set on the holy spirit his realm his domain his sphere you will have what life and peace you say is that peace in relationships no well, at least one, with God. You'll have peace with God. You'll have the peace of knowing that you're not at odds with God and that, more importantly, He's not at odds with you. You'll have no condemnation. You'll have a peaceful relationship because your eternal destiny has forever been settled. Has it been settled for you? Do you have a... Settled life in the Holy Spirit. A life of peace. Contentment. Joy. Power. That's, that's the first spirit life principle. And there's a second one here. It's in verses 3 and 4. I could say it like this. Christ's condemnation by God. Christ's condemnation by God God the Father provides the basis for our righteous law-keeping in the Spirit. I'll say it again. Christ's condemnation by God the Father provides the very basis for our righteous law-keeping in the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order, this is marvelous, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What a tremendous spirit life principle And he says the grounding of it, the basis of it, the foundation of it, the root of it, is the death of Christ. But notice exactly how Paul teaches this truth. He says, in essence, this. When God, through mediating mediating angels gave the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. God required that the Jewish people and even the Gentiles who, while they didn't have that particular law, had a law unto themselves, Romans 2. We read that. We studied that. God gave a requirement of the law that it must be fulfilled. You must do What I tell you to do. In essence, that's what God the Father was saying by the giving of the law. What I tell you to do, you must do. It was the very giving of the law for which and by which and through which the people of Israel, the children of God, were to obey God. He gave them very clear prescriptions for what they were to do. The Mosaic Law said you do this, you do this, you do this, you stay away from this, you stay away from that. You must do these things. That was the giving of the law. But we've got a huge problem. And that huge problem is we're sinners. We are still incarcerated in a flesh of sin which affects our bodies and our minds and everything about us. Our utter sinfulness does not, cannot... Bring us to the place where we're obeying God. Can't obey His law. He says, I'm going to hold you accountable to do exactly what this law says and you must do it and you must do it for my glory and you must do it because you love me and you must do it because it is right to do. And man responds, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And even if someone thought to themselves, about themselves, that they might want to attempt to do it. They couldn't even do that because they don't have the power. They don't have the capability. We are totally depraved. We are utterly sinful. And there is nothing that we can do. And there's nothing wrong with the law itself. It's not that someone says, yeah, but it was the faultiness of the law. That's why I couldn't do it. It was something inherent In the law itself. Now there's not anything wrong with the law per se. Remember in Romans 7.12. Paul says the, the law of God is holy and righteous and good. But when you have a holy and a righteous and a good law. Attempting to be obeyed by sinful man. The law is just simply not going to be followed. It's not going to be obeyed. But God wants His law to be obeyed. We have a dilemma My friends, and that dilemma will dog us until the day we die and then it will send us to a Christless eternity. That's the problem. That's the problem of our world. It's the problem of the ages. But I want you to notice what Paul says in Romans 8. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law could not do. What truth! What tremendous liberating truth! God knows that we're in a sinful condition. He knows that His law must be kept. He knows that we are weak. He knows we can't follow it. He knows there's no way to obey it. And Paul says God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It can't save us. It can't deliver us. We can't obey it in our weakened fleshly condition. God says, you disobeyed my law. I must punish you for it. I must. My law will be upheld. My law will be followed. And you know, it's not like we're saying, but but, Lord, you, you, you just haven't given me the capacity. You haven't given me the power. If you would just give it to me, I would otherwise do it. Well, that's human self-effort. Even with the aid of something outside ourselves, that's still our doing some of it. We realize we, we can't do any of it. And the fact of the matter is, even if we thought we could, we wouldn't. Why? Well, look back at Romans chapter 1. We we would not even want to do this, Romans 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You remember I said to you, it's like truth is in a box and we've got the lid on top of the box and we're sitting on the top of the box and we're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Plain to us because God has shown it to us. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And isn't that exactly what they did right at the base of Mount Sinai? They made a golden calf. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. See, they're doing the opposite of what He told them to do. Here's my law. Obey it. Do what I say. And they're doing the opposite of what is to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree. See, they know it that those who practice such things deserve to die. And they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We, we're, we're in a big time dilemma. Romans 3.9 Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all That's all. That's everybody, folks. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace... They have not known. Remember, the Holy Spirit is giving us life and peace. They don't know that peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Jews can't rely on their law. They can't ever hope to obey it in the way that God is pleased. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by the works of the law no human being no human being will be justified in his sight why since through the law comes knowledge of sin see it just just puts us in that category of being under the law of sin and death we're in a hopeless helpless estate Oh, but praise God, enter Romans 8.3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And what is it that God did that the law could not do? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Read your name in there. Read my name in there. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for lance. He, God the Father, condemned sin in the flesh. God the Father condemned Jesus Christ. He sent his only Son, His unique Son. He sent His own Son in our likeness. That means that Christ became a man like us, subject to our weaknesses, including death, though He was not Himself a sinful man. We know this because Paul immediately says that God sent His unique Son for sin. And He couldn't be a sinner and yet be sent to atone for sin. He had to be the sinless man One who could bear the weight of sin on his own shoulders, his perfect shoulders, and upon whom God the Father could condemn sin in his flesh. And that is precisely what occurred. That's the answer. Jesus came to this earth as a man. He lived a perfect life and He died on a cross as a perfect sin-bearer for God the Father and upon whom the Father condemned as an atonement not for His sin but for our sin. Beloved, this is, this is the truth of the Gospel. This truth of the atoning work of Jesus Christ becomes then the very basis the ground, the sole ground upon which this second spirit life principle is based. And what principle is that? Look at verse 4. In order that, for the very purpose that, so that something could occur. What could occur based upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross? That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You know what God has? He has a plan. And that plan includes believers actually fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. God is going to receive what He wants. Even if He has to use the death of His own Son as the very basis of it. This is marvelous. Do you realize that any good works, any righteous requirement that God commands you to obey, any act of faithfulness you perform as a Christian is based upon the cross of Christ? It's not just that past thing whereby I was saved and now I'm on my own cranking out obedience in the Christian life. No, it is based upon the cross of Christ, the death of Christ. The very purpose for our fulfilling any righteous requirement of the law is grounded upon what Jesus did on Calvary. And it changes us, not just our status. It changes us. It doesn't just tell us that we are declared not guilty in our justification. It does that. But it's not just that. It's not only that. It also changes us in the very way we live our lives as Christians, that we obey the law out of the basis of Christ's own obedience. You know, when He died in our place, He took away our sin. And when He obeyed God the Father's law perfectly through His life, and when He was obediently hanging there on the cross, it became the very fulfillment of the righteousness which is in the law. We couldn't do it. He did it on our behalf. He did it in our stead. He fulfilled it so that we would see the very fulfilling of the righteous requirement of the law, the Bible says, in us. You say, I don't see myself fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. Far from it. Well, he's not saying that we fulfill it perfectly. That's why Christ came. That's what He did. We couldn't do it. That's the point. But when we render any obedience to God, it is directly related to the fact that you are living in the Spirit. The Bible says it right here in verse 4. That's the last phrase. Christians walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, you're in a completely new world realm of existence it's a new day the inauguration of the age of the spirit has come and you don't walk any longer according to the flesh according to the dictates of your old man's status you walk now in the dictates of the life of the spirit of the living god have you thought of that means that you aren't constrained anymore with a need to fulfill the desires of the flesh. You can actually fulfill the desires of the Spirit. When He says, I want you to obey, you say, on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ and on the basis of your empowering me to walk in that very walk of your life of faith, I will do it for your honor and for your glory. This is your new spirit life principle. Follow the rest of Paul's statements here in verses 5 to 11 of Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh, here's what they do, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You see, it's two totally different realms To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, they can't please God. You, however, if you're in Christ Jesus, for which there is now no condemnation, if you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, Because anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, although there is still sinfulness within you, because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. You're now declared righteous in Christ. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that's God the Father, will also give life to your mortal bodies, He can actually cause you to be obedient and to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law as a collective group, even in those mortal bodies, even in those things that will ultimately... Ultimately decay and then have to be raised up again, he will do it through his spirit who dwells in you. So I ask you as we close. I ask you what Paul asks them right there. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, does the Spirit of God dwell in you? The Spirit of God indwells the church are you a part of the church no not the not the church with pews four walls a roof hymnals the church the body of christ the spiritual formative body of christ in what in what realm is your mind set is your mind set on the flesh your mind set on the spirit Are you in your heart secretly hostile to God? Not being able to please God? Do you belong to Christ? Are you experiencing life in the Spirit? Bow your heads with me. Oh, we can pray to You, Father. And we can ask the question reveal to me whether or not I'm in Christ Jesus and for which there is no condemnation. Am I that one? Am I a part of the body of Christ? Do I know Jesus? Am I his friend? Do I have a relationship with Him? Do I endeavor to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit? According to what He says? Do I long to obey? And when I disobey, does my heart speak of anguish within me? Because I know I've displeased and grieved the Spirit. Some of you would be saying, yes, it does. I grieve the Holy Spirit. I grieve myself when I don't obey. Well, then I ask you, have you come upon these truths that there is No condemnation. Even when you are battered and bruised and beckoning for the Spirit of God to forgive your daily transgressions. I give you hope. There is no condemnation. You are not eternally condemned. You are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You don't have to sin. You can say no to it. And even when you do, as we will all experience the grappling with this body of death all our life long, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who was condemned in the flesh, Who was our sin bearer? And He saved me. He delivered me. I'm in Christ. And now that I'm in Christ, I want to seek along with my brothers and sisters to be those who are endeavoring to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law knowing that we have a perfect Savior who Himself perfectly obeyed. He's the very ground, the very basis upon which I would ever do anything obedient to Christ. Oh Lord, thank You for granting Your Holy Spirit so that we might live in His realm. Do what He commands. Bask in His power. For those of you who have been convicted by the truth of the Gospel that you don't know Christ, you would answer the question, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, no, He does not dwell. I live a life of sin. It's an unbroken pattern. I'm condemned under the law of sin and death. You can be delivered today. Confess your sins. Turn from them. And embrace the sin bearer. Acknowledge to Him your utter sinfulness. Your inability to keep the law. And rejoice that He has done it that God the Father condemned Him for your sin and in your place. Seek to speak to someone around you. Maybe someone who has brought you or to our elders in our prayer room or to someone for whom you could cry out, I need help, I need prayer, I need someone to show me the more excellent way. We endeavor to do that, to help you. Father, we pray that you would bring to us those in whom you've designed to set your love from eternity past and whom your Holy Spirit has supernaturally placed in the body of Christ and who now, maybe for the first time today, the now, have repented and believed and have recognized and rejoiced that they've been chosen to be a part of the family of God. We rejoice with them. Bring them to us so that we might help them and establish them in the faith. Pray all these things in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.